being seated, I invite you to find a Bible. And if you will, open to the ninth chapter, ninth chapter of the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at a text found in chapter 9 of Genesis that is a critical text for all that we think and believe about God. And for that reason, I'll invite you to open the Bible and consider leaving it open for a while there in front of you. Hopefully you've noticed already at the end of the worship service printed there in your bulletin, you see a list of questions, questions for your reflection. Pastor Susanna has written those questions. You'll receive some of those each Sunday in worship. You can use those questions to reflect over, over what we talk about during worship. You can do that as an individual or perhaps your small group, your unity group, your reunion group, your journey group might like discussing the message using those small questions. We want to help each other grow in the faith, and one of the ways we do that is by providing resources for each other. So now that you've got your Bible open to Genesis chapter 9, I invite you to pray with me. God, with the word open before us, we pray that you'll give us the spirit to truly submit our lives to you. May we submit to your word written for us. May we seek truth in your word. May we find the wisdom and the guidance for living our life here on this earth as we prepare for the life to come. God, we pray that you'll change us, transform us during this time together because we know that during this time together we encounter you. And any time we are in your presence, we are changed. So God, we ask that you give each one of us ears to hear what you're saying to us today. May the oil and the wine of your Holy Spirit soften our hard hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In the world today, even in the Christian world today, a lot of Christians, particularly here in America, don't seem to know what to do with the Bible. And even more so, they don't seem to know what to do with the Old Testament. And they especially don't seem to know what to do with a story such as the story of Noah and the flood. We're going to be looking at the story of Noah and the flood this morning. And when we look at the story of Noah and the flood, the first thing that always strikes me is it is really not a children's story. Now, we can tell it to children, and children can learn from it. I've always been rather fascinated by how many nurseries I've seen that have really cute paintings of Noah and the ark and all these animals, and, and that's fine. That's, that's part of the story of Noah and the ark. But in reality, when you look at it in the book of Genesis, when you read all about it from uh, chapter 6 onward for several chapters, you, you soon realize it's not a children's story. It is a story that is terrifying. It is a story about judgment. It ranks right up there with the story that we'll read in Genesis 19 of the judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It is a story of God bringing judgment, but there's so much grace and good news woven throughout the story. I think sometimes we just relegate it to the nursery, and we, we don't even seek to determine uh, the truth from this story that we need to realize and understand. Look at the text. We pick up with the story here at verse 1. I want to start at verse 1. Here at verse 1 of chapter 9, we, we pick up the story after the ark has been built, after the rains come, after the flood occurs, after the water recedes from the earth, after Noah and his wife and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives get off of the ark, and they worship God after they get off the ark onto dry ground, after the waters recede. We pick up the story at this point. Chapter 9, verse 1. I want us to look at this text, and I'll make a few editorial remarks about the text, and then I, was, then I want us to notice what I think God wants us adults to know from the story of Noah and the flood. So the flood has occurred. It's past now. They come off the ark. The ark has landed on Mount Ararat, and they've worshiped God. And it, the story picks up, verse 1, chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I'm sure that sounds familiar to you. That is the first commandment in the Bible. It was given to Adam and Eve. And here, after the flood, it's being given to Noah and his family. You're going to hear it again in this very text. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Children are a great, great blessing most of the time. They're a gift to us from God. The very first commandment in the Bible be fruitful and multiply. Given to Adam and Eve, now you hear it being repeated to Noah. The text goes on. I want you to notice as the text goes on that some things have changed now after the flood. Before the flood, you remember the creation stories, I hope. Before the flood, Adam and Eve were in harmony with the animals. Adam and Eve were in harmony with creation. Before the flood, Adam and Eve had dominion over the animals and they lived in harmony. But now the fall has occurred. Things have changed. I hope that you understand a basic lesson about, lesson about the Christian faith. If you want to understand Christian theology, you have to understand it's good news followed by bad news followed by good news. That's the way we do Christian theology. Good news, God creates the world and declares it good. Human beings are created in the very image of God. That's good news. But then comes the fall. Humanity rebels against God. We're not in the Garden of Eden anymore, Toto. We have been cast out. The fall has occurred. We all now share our congenital family disease. We call it sin. And not only are we human beings fallen, all creation has fallen. We see that with all, the, all of the severe weather and disasters in the world. Creation is not perfect now. Creation is not in that state of original perfection. There was good news, then there was bad news, the fall occurred. Now comes the good news again. In Jesus Christ... All of creation will be restored, refreshed, 
made new, recreated. So there's good news, bad news, good news. If you try to do theology without one of those three components, you will probably miss the mark doing Christian theology. So the fall has occurred. That's our situation. But the good news is entering creation in Jesus Christ. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the renovation began. With the coming of Jesus Christ, good news began to overtake the bad news. But we're still in a world filled with the bad news. By nature, we are rebels against God. That's why something like Ash Wednesday where we are reminded that we are dust and to dust we shall return, where we are reminded that the wages of sin is death and we all share those wages, where we are reminded that we have to repent and believe the gospel is an affront, an insult to human nature. Good news, bad news, but the good news again is breaking in. But we live in that tension between the two experiences of the good news. We live in that tension where we see more and more of the good news taking reality here in life. But we still live in a fallen world. I don't think I have to convince you of that. We still live in a fallen world. So things have changed here after the flood. Adam and Eve and humanity, they're not in harmony with the animals. Look at verse 2. The fear and dread of you, no one is family. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the air and on everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. You feel the tension? We are now at enmity with each other. We are a creation that kills our brothers. Remember the story of Cain and Abel. That's who we are. That's the condition that we need to be rescued from. So there's a tension now. There's a tension now between us and the rest of the created order. Look at verse 3. Some of you should be so excited about verse 3, and you probably have never noticed it. And when I first read it, you're not going to be excited about about it, but I'm going to tell you why you need to be excited about verse 3. Look at verse 3. As, as Noah and his family continue to learn about their relationship with all of living creation, look at verse 3. Every moving thing, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Every living thing can be fruit for you. There's debate in the Jewish and the Christian world as to whether or not Adam and Eve were vegetarians. Maybe they were. Maybe they were. They were in harmony with creation. They were in harmony in the, with the animal kingdom. But now in this world, guess what? You can go eat a steak. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So maybe Adam and Eve had to be vegetarian, but I don't have to be vegetarian, and you don't have to be vegetarian. There's some enmity between the created order now in the midst of the created order. Ask those cows that we butcher if they know about the enmity that now exists in creation. So every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And then beginning at verse 4 through verse 6, we see something that is basic and central to our Jewish Christian conviction. Look at verse 4. Now that he's told you you can eat meat, notice the caveat in verse 4. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. We Jews and Christians bleed our meat, I hope. That's a Christian Jewish tradition. We bleed our meat. And one of the reasons is the Bible teaches firmly that the life is in the blood. 
The life symbolizes our very, the blood symbolizes our very life. So here we begin to learn something about how sacred life is to God. Only you shall eat flesh, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. For your own life blood will surely require a reckoning. From every animal I will require it and from human beings, each one for the blood of another. Did you hear that? I will require it from human beings, each one, one for another. I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. So it's obvious in the Bible throughout, from here through Revelation, that life is precious, life is sacred. God gives it, and God alone has the authority to take it. But you notice here in the text, and Jesus never contradicted it. The Jewish community never contradicted it. Here in the text it says, Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God has made humankind. Capital punishment. Now that I've got your attention, capital punishment. When I look at the scriptures, this is, this is fairly clear to me. When I look at the scriptures, all life is sacred. When I look at the scriptures, I also see an allowance for capital punishment, such as what you're reading right here in Genesis. And Genesis is the first book of your Bible for a reason. It's the book of origins. It's a foundational document. So we see here that, that the people of the Bible, the Jewish people, accepted capital punishment. And Jesus never contradicted that. Jesus never, never contradicted either was written in the Old Testament, or he didn't contradict Jewish practice. So there's capital punishment. Let me say a word about capital punishment, because I see a lot of sloppy thinking in this world about capital punishment. The theory or the theology of capital punishment is solid. Now, here's the, here's the issue. And the reason it's solid is this. Again, you're in the book of origins. When you look at the book of Genesis, it is clear God, three, God created three institutions— Marriage and the family, the basic institution of society. His people, the people of Abraham that eventually become the Christian church. He has his people, that's another institution. And he also forms human government. So those are the three basic institutions that God creates, what he's creating here in the book of Genesis, those three basic institutions. And he does give government the right to exact capital punishments. He does not give you the right or me the right to exact capital punishment. We call that revenge, and we do not do that individually. But the government has that right. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 13. So it is, it is acceptable theology, acceptable theory. Here comes the concern. Um, in the Jewish community, in the Hebrew Bible, obviously, if you do capital punishment... If you exact a life because that person has exacted a life from someone, if you do capital punishment, it's got to be levied, it's got to be carried out in a fair, equitable, and just way. That's why, by the way, this is here, but if you look at Jewish history, it rarely was carried out. What you tend to see in the New Testament is those mob lynching actions, like when they all got angry and threw rocks and stoned Stephen to death. 
That wasn't a governmental capital punishment. So they accepted capital punishment. They believed that God allowed for capital punishment for the government to do that, to create society that is safe and just. But there's that issue. It's got to be fair and equitable and just. So there's always been Jewish and Christian tradition. We have always been very, very, very cautious about using capital punishment. Because it's got to be fair and equitable and just. I don't know about you. Maybe this is my cynicism. I don't know that I trust the government to equitably levy taxes. I'm pretty sure I have hesitancy with giving too much trust to the government to, to use capital punishment in a fair, just, equitable way. So the issue is not whether or not you can believe in capital punishment. I think the Bible's clear about that. Jesus never contradicted it. But you've got to do it in a fair, just, equitable way. You, it can't be done according, whether or not done, according to the, to the dream team you can hire, to the lawyers you can hire. Some lawyers, some people can hire lawyers that will get them off the hook and others can't do that. That's not fair and just and equitable. That's why the Jewish and Christian tradition has always been really nervous about exacting it because it's got to be done in a fair, just, equitable way. But the point here in Genesis is that life is sacred. God gives it. God does allow the state to take it. Sometimes war, war is never a good, but sometimes there is a justified war. We actually call it the just war theory in Christian tra tradition. There are things that are never a good, but they may be a necessary. I'm really grateful my father was in Patton's Third Army, and he went to fight the Nazis in Germany. That's not a good thing, but it was a necessary thing at that point. But we should never lose sight of the fact that life is sacred. That's clear in the Bible. So we're up to verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply, unless you missed it, in case you missed it the first time. Be fruitful and multiply, abound on the earth and multiply it. In it. Now here comes the important part. The rest is very interesting, but here comes the important part. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the domestic animals and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow, my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters will never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the rainbow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of the flesh that is on the earth. God then says to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established you between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You look like an intelligent audience. I'm sure you realize this is about the covenant, this section. So what does this have to do with us? Three things. That's a good homiletical move. Three things, three points. And then we'll pray and 
begin to go out and do ministry in the world. Number one, the story of Noah is not necessarily a children's story. It's a story to teach us that God is a holy, righteous God. God cannot turn the blind eye to evil. At the beginning of the, jo- the Noah account in chapter 6, you read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. That's Noah's age. That's Noah's day. So God couldn't turn a blind out of that, so he purged the earth with water. He started over again. We have to see God as completely loving and God as completely righteous. We have to hold those two things together. God is holy. We aren't. So the only way we can be in union or communion or intimacy with God is God has to provide the way, and he has. We'll talk about that in a moment. Second thing this text teaches you is that God is a God of great grace. Great grace. People, people think grace starts in the New Testament. That's not true. It starts in the book of Genesis. God has always been a God of great grace. God promised that he will always have a remnant. He will always have a people. And that's why he looked at Noah and you again probably remember these words from the early chapters about Noah Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and Noah walked with God so God looked at Noah and said I I could work with this so the judgment came on all the earth everyone was drowned except Noah and his sons and their family Uh, but you notice that God in his grace said I will replenish the earth I will use Noah's seed Descendants to replenish the earth. We're all descendants of Noah sitting in here. We, we, we see the grace of God there. He could have destroyed the whole earth, but he, he left a remnant. That's the grace of God. But here's where you need to get excited. Noah's seed replenished the earth. Noah had a son named Shem. Shem was an ancestor of Abraham. And it's from the seed of Abraham that we're all blessed. Because it's from the seed of Abraham that Jesus Christ comes. So even when the flood is happening, God is working out your salvation and my salvation. God is a God of great grace. Lastly, God is a covenant-making, promise-keeping, grace-filled God. This is the reason during Lent, frequently we look at covenants. A covenant is just an agreement between two parties. In the Old Testament, we, we see five major covenants. This covenant with Noah, it's the first one called the covenant, this covenant with Noah. Then there's a covenant with Moses that happens on Mount Sinai. Then there's a priestly covenant that occurs in Numbers with Phineas. Then there's the Davidic covenant with King David. And then there's talk of a new covenant. It begins in the prophecies of Jeremiah. And we'll talk more about that as Lent goes on, the new covenant, and how it is prepared for with all these four previous covenants, and how Jesus comes into the world to fulfill the new covenant. But God is a covenant-making, promise-keeping God. Here in this covenant with Noah, he makes this covenant with all living creatures that were alive then, that would be alive whenever. So he's made this covenant with you and with me. He's made this covenant, and you, 
you see that he says he's making a promise. This is the covenant, the agreement, to never again destroy earth by flood. Now, the New Testament tells us earth will be rejuvenated one day by fire, recreated by fire, but never again will flood destroy the earth. That's the promise God's making here. You see in this covenant, God lays all the stipulations on himself. Again, grace. You see him doing that here in this covenant. And you see what the sign of the covenant is here. sign of the covenant is the rainbow. All the covenants have a sign. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, the sign was circumcision. The covenant with Moses, the sign was keeping the Sabbath. The covenant sign for the New Testament, the new covenant, is baptism. So there's always a sign that is a, a, a symbol of God's covenant-keeping, love-keeping, promise-keeping personality. So the sign of this covenant with Noah is the rainbow. And it's a beautiful, beautiful sign that God's covenant will endure throughout all the ages. It disturbs me that that beautiful sign that points towards God's love and God's grace in this culture has been turned into a symbol of, of human pride. There's something really very wrong about that. It was originally meant to be a symbol, a sign of the great covenant-making, promise-keeping, grace-filled work of God in the world, such as this promise he makes, that he makes to Noah. You know, throughout our history, whenever we see a rainbow, whether Jewish or Christian, we see a rainbow, we offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God for God's promises to us. Not sure that's what people think of now in this culture when they see a rainbow. God keeps his promises. He's made so many of them for us. I've not counted, but I'm told that there are between 5,000 and 8,000 and some promises in in the Bible. I hope that you know the promises of God. I don't know how people make it through life without knowing the promises of God. Life is hard. I hope that you know the promises of God. I hope you know what he has promised. I hope you know what he has not promised. He has not promised comfort. He has not promised good health always. He has not promised a life free from suffering. But there's so many amazing promises. I'm sure there's probably 8,000 or better in the Bible. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. There's so many wonderful promises in the Word. Another interesting promise is found at the end of John chapter 16. Jesus promises us tribulation in this world. It's a promise. In this world you shall have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. I hope you know the promises of God and you're growing in knowing the promises of God. I don't know how people do life without these resources. You're not going to find sustenance on Fox News or MSNBC to help you make it through life. I hope that you know the promises of God's Word. One person has taught me so much about the promises of God's Word is that great 
Christian Dutch watchmaker who spent time in a concentration camp, Corey Ten Boom. She wrote things and she preached things like this. Some of you have heard these. You won't hear these on Fox News or MSNBC, but some of you have heard these things. Corey Ten Boom said things like, I have experienced God's presence in the deepest hell that man can create. She, she was in a concentration camp for a while. She went on to say, I have really tested the promises of the Bible, and believe me, you can count on them. She said, and I love this one, when a train goes through a dark tunnel, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. And one more, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at God, you'll be at rest. We need to know the covenants. We need to know the promises. We need to know who God is. God has a plan, and it involves all creation, not just our souls. God has a plan for all creation. And my friend, you are part of it. You're part of it. I hope that you can trust them. Amen.